0: So, happy New, year. happy New year. Yeah, it is here 2020. Raise your hand if you think 2019 went by really fast. Yeah, if <laughs> all the old people raise their hand. <laughs> Once you get past like forty, they just zoom by, don't they? Yeah. Um, young people are like, no, it dragged on. Maybe it dragged on for you because it wasn't a great year. Maybe you had some serious struggles this year and and when you're going through hard times, the clock just seems to tick slower, right? And, and it could be, uh, for some of us, a grateful moment. When we get to close, slam the door on 2019 and move into 2020. Um, I'm starting my 29th year as senior pastor in 2020. Uh, uh, and... I say that to say, I feel like those 29 years have flown by, gone by so incredibly fast. Now, those of you who have to sit and listen to my sermons every week might have a different opinion. Maybe it's dragged a little bit for you, but for me, it feels like it has flown by. Last January... I started a sermon series uh, in the book of Genesis. Some of you will remember. Went all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 50. It took us six and a half months to get through the book of Genesis on Sunday mornings. And some of you probably think that is the longest sermon series I have ever preached. But you would be wrong. Uh, Today, I am preaching part 29 in a 28-year sermon series entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And part one was preached on January the 5th, exactly 28 years ago today, um, when I preached a sermon entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And the next year, in the first Sunday of January, I preached, Where Do We Go From Here? Part 2, and the next year, Part 3, and so forth, and they keep letting me come back. They haven't changed the locks on my office, and so I'm still here, And today we're into part 29. So raise your hand if you were here last year for that sermon. Okay, so a bunch of you are new since then. Raise your hand if you were here five years ago for that sermon. Okay, 10? (laughs) Wow, 15? Getting smaller, 20? Oh, it's a contest, there's no prize for this. 25? (laughs) Anybody that was here for the first one 28 years ago? <laughs> wow, let's hear it for them, those guys. Those are some long-suffering people. Well, if you have been here um, for a lot of those years, you know what to expect this morning. I am going to tell you a short story. Um, it, it is a short story. The longer version of this story Is happening in our Next Steps meeting, which, you know, shameless plug, this Wednesday we start Next Steps every Wednesday in January, starting this Wednesday. If you haven't been through our Next Steps meeting, it's absolutely essential for you to just sort of get grounded as a Christian, get grounded as a part of this church, find out um, some of the absolutely foundational principles of Christianity and how you can grow as a Christian and how you can be a part of this church and what that looks like in your life. So if you're not, if you haven't already been through our Next Steps um, meetings, I strongly encourage you to, to come this Wednesday night. Uh, the information about that is in your bulletin. We'll talk more about it a little bit later. But you're going to get the long version of a story during that class. But today I'm going to just give you the short version to tell you a little bit about the um, this church and some of the experiences that we went through in the early years. So you're going to get a short story and then we're going to look at a passage of scripture. That passage is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. So if you um, have Bibles, now is a great time to turn to that passage, Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. That's where we're going to be today. And then we're going to think together about Uh, God's vision for our lives, God's vision for us as a church, God's vision for us as individuals as we move into a new calendar year. It's just a great time as we turn over the calendar to stop and take stock and go, okay, where are we supposed to be headed? What does God have in mind for us? And And today you're going to get the general picture of that. It's primarily going to be Bible study today. We're going to be talking about a passage and how it applies to our lives. You come next week to Vision Sunday Part 2 and you're going to get specifics about the details of this church and our lives and what specific things we're going to be involved in in 2020. So it's a two-part package. You definitely want to be here next week for that. So let's jump in. It all begins with a story. It's the fall of 1991, and our church was a four-year-old church plant that was just getting started. We were meeting in a school in the city of Diamond Bar. We had this dynamic senior pastor whose name is Cliff Howery, and Cliff is still one of my dearest friends and mentors to this day. Um, and The thing about Cliff is he's just a magnetic personality. People are drawn to him. Everybody loves him. I've never met anybody who knew him who didn't love him. He's just one of those guys, makes you feel like every person who's ever met him is his best friend. And so that's a great guy to plant a church with because as people in the community were getting to meet him, they're coming to the church and everybody that was there was there really in those first few years because Cliff was there. And uh, it was sort of like his young flock that he was bringing together. He was a senior pastor, and I was the young 26-year-old youth pastor. And um, in that fall, in 1991, Cliff announced to us that uh, the Lord was calling him to a church in in the state of Idaho, and he was going to be leaving. Now, the church hadn't even constituted as a church yet. We were just getting our feet wet. We were just getting some traction. And now the singular personality in this church that everyone is connected to and everybody is drawn to announces that he's leaving. And he tells us this at the end of October and that he's gonna gonna stay through December and then in January he's gonna be gone. And so it gives us a couple of months to prepare for that. Um, And... uh, by the way, every time I think about this, it makes me think, I don't know if there's been a year that's gone by yet where we haven't had this situation where some beloved member of the church family is called away. Somebody moves to a different area. Somebody gets a job transfer. Somebody uh, passes away. Somebody decides that uh, God's called them to st- help start another church somewhere or, or, or whatever. And, and you look at people, then you go, oh, this is such a dear person in our church. They're such a key person in our ministry. They're doing so many of the things that are so important. How could we ever lose this person? God began teaching me that year that it's not about a person. It's about God. And he does amazing things, and every time God moves somebody, as long as it's God who's doing the moving, I'm down with it. It, It's okay, because God is going to raise somebody else up, and God is going to do a new thing, and it's always good for his kingdom. But it's always scary, and it's always painful when God calls somebody who's such an integral part of the church away. So Pastor Cliff was called to go to Idaho I was asked if I would fill the pulpit for six weeks in addition to my youth pastor responsibilities, and I was just gullible enough to believe them when they said six weeks. That was 29 years ago. (laughs) Um, And what happened when Cliff announced that he was leaving was half the church immediately left. As soon as Cliff left, half the church immediately left. Among them was our worship pastor. So picture this. There's there's two guys in the church that were the upfront platform personalities, our senior pastor and our worship pastor, and they both decided to leave at the same time. Uh, And that left 26-year-old me. So if you want to get a sense of what that would be, that would be like if Myself and Pastor Ricky both decided to leave now, and Garrett became the senior pastor. That's, that's, that's what that would be like. Like literally, same age, same everything. That's what that would be like. So um, now whether you think Garrett as a senior pastor would be a really great party, or whether you think <laughs> that's a terrifying thing, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But let me just tell you this, that uh, as a church, we were all sort of shaking in our boots back then because... We were losing our leaders. We, we had no money. We had no building. Uh, we weren't even constituted as a church yet. We had no idea. I did not know whether God even wanted the church to continue. Maybe this was God's way of saying, hey, fold this thing up and everybody go do something else. That's where we were. But it turns out God had a vision and God wasn't finished with us yet. January 5th, 1992 was the first Sunday without Pastor Cliff. And that Christmas season was a really rough one for me because I was feeling the weight of all this. I knew I was not prepared to lead. I knew it. It was not like, hey, maybe this is God's name. It was like, oh, dear God, this church is in deep trouble if I'm like the most spiritually mature leader here. And um, I knew I wasn't prepared to lead, and I wasn't even sure if God had a future for our church. And so I was just praying. Man, I prayed more in preparation for that sermon than any sermon I've ever preached before or since. Um, And that's when God led me to a passage that changed my life and ultimately changed the life of this church. Um, And that verse is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And since that time, it's become sort of the um, life verse of our church. And uh, it's become our tradition on the first Sunday of the year to stand and recite this verse together. So let me invite you to stand. We're going to put the verse up on the screen. Come on, come on, come on. You can do it. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and we're going to read it out loud together. Here we go. For I am confident of this very thing, That he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Go ahead, sit down. For I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it, will mature it, will complete this good work that he began. I am confident that he who began this good work in you will, in fact, carry out the good work. That He started in you. He's not going to drop you and let you go. And when I came across that verse in my time of prayer, meditation, and Bible study back at the end of 1991, I was just struck to the core. It was as if I heard God's voice screaming at me from the scriptures saying, listen, God began a good work in this church and he hasn't finished it yet, but he will be faithful to carry out the work that he began. And it was, it was then that I began to get bolstered in my confidence and think, you know, maybe I can stand up in front of this congregation of people, and maybe I can inspire them in some way. Maybe I can encourage them in some way that will help them move on from this place that we're at. And as I said, it's become kind of a life verse for our church. Um, and every year at this time, we think about what it means and what it means to us. And by the way, this is a great place for a little personal Bible study tip. When you're you're studying the Bible, don't ever ask the question, what does it mean to me, until you have first answered the question, what does it mean? The the question is, what does it mean? It, It meant something to the Holy Spirit when he inspired it. It meant something to the Apostle Paul when he wrote it. It meant something to the original audience when they first heard it, right? And... And it means what it means. Now the application comes once you understand what it means. So first the question is, what does it mean? And then the question is, what does it mean to me? How's it going to get carried out in my life? What does God want me to do with this truth? So let me give you some context on the what does it mean side. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. It's been 10 to 12 years since Paul had been there uh, and started that church. And when the church began... He had only been there for a few days. You can find this story at home this week, Acts chapter 16. It's the first church ever to happen in, on the continent of Europe. And God sends Paul to bring the gospel to Europe, and he goes to this major city called Philippi. And it is an absolutely major city. It's one of the biggest, most important cities in the world at the time. And God sends him to Philippi, where they have the Temple of Diana, Where the pagans uh, worship this goddess named Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, even to this day. And uh, she's a fertility goddess. And so they have all of these weird uh, sexual rituals associated with worshiping her. And people come from all over the world so they can worship at the temple of Diana. And there's prostitutes all over the city that are a part of their religious system. And Paul comes into that city where there are not only no Christians, no one has ever heard the gospel there. There not only are there no Christians, but there's hardly any Jews because there's not even a synagogue in this big city. In fact, the only place you can find any Jews on the Sabbath is if you go outside the city wall. There by the riverside, there are a couple of Jewish women who are worshiping on the Sabbath. And Paul goes there and finds them worshiping on the Sabbath. And he tells them about the Messiah, who is Jesus. And they say, We want to hear more about this. Come with us into the town. And they invite him into the city. And as he goes into the city, he's observing the people. And he sees this girl, who is a slave, who uh, is possessed by a demon. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God inspires him to cast that demon out of this girl. The demon comes out of her, and everybody sees this happen, and the town is thrown into an uproar. And there's a big upheaval, and it's almost like a riot. And finally, the authorities come in, and somebody says, hey, who started this? And everybody points at Paul and his friend Silas, who's there with them. And so they take them into the town square, and they beat them with the equivalent of baseball bats. In the, in the town square, they've got now broken bones and lacerated skin and bruises and all of that. And they're chained up and dragged into jail where they're thrown in the dungeon of the, in the basement of the jail, put in stocks and chained to the wall, Paul and Silas, just for casting a demon out of a girl. And it's there that they begin to sing praises to God. You can find all this in Acts 16. And they're praising God even in the worst of circumstances. And in the midst of their praises, the ground begins to shake. Their chains fall off. The jail doors open up. And there is mayhem in the jail. The jailer comes running in to grab his sword to kill himself because he is going to lose these prisoners because now the jail doors are open. And Paul says, no, no, don't kill yourself. We're all here. We're all accounted for. And he says, what happens? And Paul says, let me tell you about my God and what he's just done. And the jailer accepts Christ. And so then the jailer takes Paul and Silas to his home so he can bandage their wounds. And while there, they share the gospel with his family. And the jailer and his family all accept Christ. So what do we have now for a church in Philippi? We have these two Jewish women who just today have heard about the Messiah we have a girl who had a demon cast out of her. We can assume that she's interested. And, and now we have the jailer and his family. That's the whole church. And that the church has existed in Philippi for one day. And so what does Paul do? He leaves. He, he gets up and leaves because they say, if you stay, they'll kill you. You got to go. And he leaves under cover of darkness. The church is one day old, two max. And he leaves. Now, that is a church that nobody would expect to survive, let alone thrive, right? And not only did they survive, but they did begin to thrive. And by the time Paul's writing his letter to them, it's been about 10 or 12 years. They had become one of the most influential churches on the planet. In fact, if you read Paul's other letters, you'll find them all over the place because he keeps using them as an example to other Christians all over the place saying, you should be more like the Philippians. The Philippian church becomes this healthy, robust, disciple-making, church-planting, world-changing family of God. And, And the gospel begins to spread throughout Europe from this church. It's an amazing, incredible thing. So I tell you that because I want you to understand Grace Fellowship or Chaparral Community Church as we were known then is not the first church to lose their founding pastor in their infancy (laughs) and and to have no reasonable expectation of survival and then to go on and be a vibrant, healthy, world-changing church. God did that among the Philippians. He's done that among us. He's done that many, many, many times. And I've given a lot of thought to this. I thought, why has this church become a great church in spite of all that? And I think I've got it figured out. I'm pretty sure it's me. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no it is obviously not me whatever God has done here has not been because of me it's been in spite of me and before you get too cocky it's in spite of you too okay because the reason this church has any health and any vibrancy and and any greatness to it is because we are God's church It's it's not because of our power, it's because of God's grace. It's because of God's unbelievable investment in us. And God is serious, He is serious about changing the world. And we are an example of the fact that He will use the most unlikely of people to do that. And we are the most unlikely of people. All right, let's look at the context of our passage Let's read the whole passage beginning in verse 1. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I always offer prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Look at verse 5, and you're going to start to see a key for why Paul has this confidence that God is going to continue and actually bring to fruition this work he has begun. Look at verse 5. He says, this is true in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. It's about their participation in the gospel. Listen, let me just put this as simply as I can. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Being a Christian church is not a spectator sport. Remember, Paul is not writing to an individual here, he's writing to the church at Philippi. He's writing to all of them together. When he says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you, the you is plural. He's saying in all y'all. He who began a good work in all y'all is gonna complete the work he began. And so he's writing to a church and he's saying that when God planted the Philippian church, he had a vision for who they could become, and that God was going to be faithful to complete the maturing work that he had begun in them. Remember, that he would perfect the work, that word perfect, the the Greek word is also translated as complete, that he would complete the work, or he would bring to maturity the work. So he's talking about A mature church. What does a mature church look like and how does a church become mature? And he ties it back in verse five to their participation in the gospel. That's the reason he has for his confidence. It's their participation in the gospel. They were not content to just sit and watch what God was doing. They were an integral part of what God was doing. Listen, we know That God is faithful by his very nature. He cannot be unfaithful. God cannot break a promise. It's not just that he doesn't break promises. That by his nature he is faithful. It is impossible for him to break promises. God comes through when he says he's going to come through. Amen? And and you may not know how he's going to come through. You may not know when he's going to come through. And he may not come through the way you asked him to come through. That's not what I said but God is always faithful. And not only is God always faithful, but God is all-powerful. So it's not like he makes a promise and he says, I'm going to do this thing. And then he goes, oh, wait a second. I don't know how to do that. Oh, wait a second. I don't have the resources to do that. No, God is all-powerful. God can do whatever he wants to do. In Ephesians, it tells us that uh, he is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think according to the power that dwells within us in Christ Jesus. So God is always faithful, never unfaithful. God is always powerful, never lacking in resources or strength. And yet, some local churches thrive and impact the world for Christ, and other churches get distracted and fizzle out and die or worse, stay pseudo-alive on life support. Never, never participating in the gospel at all, never being a part of what God is doing. And, and you know, that kind of feels a little strange to us here in 21st century Southern California because it's not cool to be a Christian here anymore. Um, it's, not, it's not the culturally expected norm for people. But there are places in still throughout the Bible Belt in the USA where if you're just alive, you're a member of a church. That's just part of the deal. The church is like a social club. The church is like, a, the, you know, just part of you a belonging to your community. And there are many, many churches that are healthy, vibrant, powerful, and world-changing all over the country. But there are also many churches that are struggling and lifeless And the Holy Spirit hasn't showed up for worship service in 10 years or more. And and so being a member of an organization that calls itself a church doesn't mean that you're a part of a living, breathing organism that is spiritually empowered by the Holy Spirit that is changing the world. God is always faithful. God is always powerful. And yet some churches fail miserably while other ones thrive. Why is that? If God never changes, if God is always faithful, if God is always powerful, and and that means God is not the variable in this equation. So who is the variable? We are. The question is not, is God going to be faithful? The question is not, is God going to be powerful enough to do what he says he's going to do? The question is, are we going to submit to him and participate with him in what he's going to do so we get to be a part of it? God's going to do what he's going to do so some church families are faithful participants in the gospel and others are not so Philippians 1 6 it's not a specific promise that was made just to the Philippian church nor is it a specific promise that is made to our church it is a principle that we're given in scripture that applies to us And that principle is that God is always faithful to complete the good work that he begins. The question is, what will our place be in that? That was the challenge facing the Philippians in the first century. I mean, they were one day old as a church. They weren't even, they had two Jews in their group. That was as much understanding of God as they had. And whatever Paul had told them before he left. And he left. And the Holy Spirit transformed that little group of people into a world-changing church. They faced the same challenge in the first century that we face in the 21st century. We must be faithful to participate in the gospel. And frankly, probably in every church in America, and we're no exception, there are people who are a part of that church in the sense that they show up and are a part of the audience when programs take place. That's not what the scripture means when it says to be a full participant in the gospel. We're supposed to be participating in the things that are important to God. We're supposed to be a part of God's strategy to reach a lost world. We're supposed to be people who are loving our neighbors as ourselves. We're supposed to be people who are living differently because God has called us to live differently. So Paul uses the whole book of Philippians to describe what it means to participate in the gospel, but we don't have time to study the whole book of Philippians today. Instead, I'm going to give you three big points right out of the beginning of Philippians that are going to help us understand what does it mean for us to participate in the gospel. And the first one is found in verse 27. So if you're in Philippians 1, just scroll down to verse 27. He's been talking to them about this calling and this confidence and what it means to live in Christ. And then in verse 27 he says this, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind and striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's just stop there. He tells them to conduct themselves in a certain way. It's a question of conduct. He, he's saying that part of what it means to participate in the gospel is to actually behave in certain ways, to actually live your life in certain patterns, to actually do certain things and don't do other things. It's, it has to do with how we act. Christianity is not at its heart a creed, as important as doctrine is. It's not theoretical. It's not a philosophy to which we ascribe. Christianity is a rebirth. To be a Christian is to be born again. That's why Jesus coined that term in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus, the great theological mind of his day, comes to Jesus and says, listen, I'm not sure I understand. After all of my training and all of my religious background and all of my reading of the Old Testament, I'm still not sure I understand. How does one enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus just looks at him and says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. And, And Nicodemus scratches his head and says, how in the world can I do that? How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? And Jesus explains to him that he's talking about spiritual birth. And, he, and he's basically saying that until you're into a saving relationship with Jesus, that you are spiritually Dead and you need to be born spiritually. Just like you've been born physically, you need to be born spiritually. And that's why Jesus coins the term born again, because it, it sums up the principle better than any other term I can think of. This is not a um, rejuvenation, it's not a revival, it's not a renewal, it's not an improvement. It is a rebirth. And to become a follower of Jesus means you're gonna be born again. It's not just about thinking differently. It's not just about changing your views. It's not about choosing a new religion. Being born again is a transformational event. It changes you from the inside out. The old person is done away with, and you actually get a new nature when you come to know Christ. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's an entirely new life. It's no longer the old man living. The old man was done away with. I have become a new person. And when you become a new person, you act differently. Now, I'm not talking about a set of rules to follow. That's what every religion wants to come and offer us. Hey, here's our rules in this religion. In this religion, we don't eat this and we do eat that. In our religion, we don't drink this and we do drink that. In our religion, we don't use these words, but we use these words. We worship on Fridays, really. We worship on Sundays, really. We worship a a wooden idol, really. Well, we worship, And, and, and here's your list of things to do. Jesus comes along and goes, no, 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 you've missed the whole point. It's not about a list of things to do or a list of things not to do. It's about a rebirth so that I am transformed and now I become a new person and now I behave the way that new person behaves. It's an entirely different thing to be told keep these rules as opposed to being told be transformed. And once you're transformed, you will by nature live differently. And so if you've been watching your own life, forget about watching other people's life. You're not anybody's judge. If you've been watching your own life and you've been saying, well, gosh, I don't know, I've been coming to church and I believe these doctrines and all this, but I don't see any change in my life. I don't see my, myself becoming more like Christ, I don't see myself having the heart of Jesus, I don't see any changes in my life, then perhaps you have changed religions, but you haven't undergone transformation. Because that transformation, that rebirth, makes me a new person. Now, none of us is perfect. And God works on each one of us at different paces, in different ways, and he might convict you of something that needs to change in your life, and he's never convicted me of that in my life yet, but he's got me over here dealing with this thing that's a big deal to me, and you've never even thought about that. We, let's not set ourselves up as each other's judges here. What I'm saying is, if you're saved, you're changing. And if you're not changing, you're not saved. That's what Jesus said. And, and, and when that kind of transformation is underway, it just affects the way you conduct yourself. Look at Colossians. If you're in Philippians, just turn the page to the right. Colossians chapter 1 is the next book to the, to the right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Let me read it. He, he says it to the Colossians, kind of the same thing. He just says it differently. Here's what he says. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, there's going to be some things that are changing in your conduct. And so the way we conduct ourselves is a part of what it means to live a transformed life. Participation in the gospel means that when you become a Christian, you start to act like a Christian. Now, don't get it backwards. I didn't say, come on, start to act like a Christian and maybe you'll be a Christian. That's not how it works. It's that once you actually become a follower of Christ, by nature, you start to act like one. It means that you start to imitate Christ. If if you want a good way, stop looking at each other and going, well, when am I going to be as spiritual as her? When am I going to be as godly as him? Or thank God I'm more godly than she is. Forget all of that. You want something to look at? Look at Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. Be an imitator of me. So if we're going to be Christ-like, What should we be imitating? Again, it's not a list of tasks, it's not a list of rules. I wanna know who Jesus is at his heart and I wanna be like that, right? So what do we know about Jesus? Well, for starters, Jesus loved everybody. Oh my goodness, there's just so much divisiveness in our culture today where we love to put people in groups and we decide which groups we're a part of and which groups we're not and we love our group and we don't love those other groups. That was so not Jesus. Jesus loved everybody. And you know how it showed? He was constantly drawn to the people who were the outcast. Constantly drawn to the people who were not accepted in culture. Constantly drawn to the people who had nothing to offer him. Constantly drawn to the people who were hurting. Why? Because he could heal them. Constantly drawn to people who were spiritually dead. Why? Because he could make them alive. Constantly drawn to hypocrites, why? Because he could make them genuine. Constantly drawn to to broken people, why? Because he could make them whole. Jesus loved everybody. Just do a self-evaluation and ask yourself, hey, 2019 just passed. Would I characterize myself last year as a person who radically loved everybody? If not, then maybe that's the conduct God wants to work on in your life this year. Another thing about Jesus, Jesus invested in making disciples. We get a three-year picture of his life in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? And what do we see him doing that whole time? Making disciples. All throughout those Gospels, when you see Jesus, once his ministry begins, when you see Jesus, you always see him with these guys. And the only time you ever see him when he's not with these guys, he's away praying and working on his relationship with the Father, But other than that, he is with these guys. He is constantly with them. And he is teaching them. And he is serving them. And he is encouraging them. And he is challenging them. And he is praying for them. And he is praying with them. And he is giving them opportunities to do ministry together. He is making disciples. Why? Because he knows that in three years he's gone. And this, he did not come to just show up, he came to start a movement. And these guys were the future of that movement. And so, not only did he invest in making disciples, but his last words to us before he ascended into heaven was this. Now you go make disciples. That's what he's called us to do. So ask yourself this question. What am I doing in my relationships that is about making disciples of Jesus Christ? What am I doing? Who am I in relationship with where I am intentionally investing in that person or those people to see them grow in their spiritual relationship with God? If you're a parent, oh, how I hope you're investing in your children this way. If you're a grandparent, oh, how I hope you're investing in your grandkids this way. If you are a spouse, how I long for you to invest in your spouse this way. If you are somebody's friend, how God wants you to invest in your friends this way. Your neighbors, there there are people... That you need to make disciples of. We are the ones who are supposed to be participating in the gospel, not just watching it happen. And too many of us have bought the lie that comes straight from the lips of Satan that says there are professional Christians whose job it is to make all the disciples and the rest of us are the audience. That is a lie. The only way that a world is going to get reached for Christ is if we all make disciples. And we all try to help people grow. And we're going to get into that next week about some ways that we have designed to help people do that. But if you want to ask yourself, am I conducting myself in a manner that is worthy of Christ? Ask yourself, am I making disciples? And if not, how could I be? And you might be thinking, oh my gosh, there's, I'm in no position to teach anybody anything. Baloney, that's the Greek word. Baloney. <laughs> you are in a position to teach Somebody. Find somebody who needs to be encouraged and you encourage them. Find somebody who needs to hear what God's been teaching you and share it with them. There is somebody you could be making a disciple of. Jesus invested in that. Jesus lived in a relationship with his Father in a way that built intimacy with God and where he submitted to the will of his Father. He said, I don't say or do anything that my Father doesn't give me to say or do. And, and like I said, whenever you couldn't find him, whenever the disciples went, hey, where's Jesus? Where was he? He was off praying, spending time with the Father, right? He was investing in his relationship with God. What am I doing to invest in my relationship with God? I mean, am I, am I reading the Bible? Am I in prayer? Am I um, uh, attending a Bible study? Am I doing anything that's going to help me learn, grow, change Or am I just hoping that's gonna sort of happen by osmosis? Jesus, he he took eternal things and he prioritized them over temporal things. And man, that's convicting to me. How much of my time and energy, how much of my money, how much of my thoughts go to things that are just all gonna burn up one day, just passing through, and how much goes to that which is eternal? Jesus made sacrifices for those in need, even to the point of going to the cross. So we can look at these big principles in Jesus' life. You don't have to do exactly what Jesus did. You don't need to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. Jesus did that already. That's already been done. You don't need to lay aside your deity and the rights of your deity, I should say. In order, you don't have any deity, okay? So don't worry about that. But this principle of living the way that Jesus lived that's how you got to conduct yourself. It comes down to not just what you think and what you believe, but how you live. Second thing, because you guys are not listening fast enough. We're running out of time. <laughs> um, second thing. A mark of a mature church that is participating in the gospel is unity. Look again. Uh, we go back to Philippians chapter one. Look again with me at verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intense on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, church, you guys are one body. Start to act like it over and over and over he uses these kinds of words in just the verses we read that, 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 that the church should be one spirit that we should have one mind that we should strive together that we should have the same love that we should be on the same purpose now That doesn't mean that we lose our individuality. When he says that we're supposed to have one mind, it doesn't mean that we have to all think the same thoughts, have the same opinions. Obviously, we all have different gifts. We come from different backgrounds and experiences. We all see the world a little bit differently. But what he's saying is that we should have one mindset. We should have a shared belief system, a shared worldview. We don't think the same thoughts. I mean, diversity is our strength. But it does mean that we should be of all the same mindset, and we should have compatible core values. It means that we're all on the same team. That's why we did what we did when we accepted new members this morning. We talked about, hey, we're on the same mission here. We're on the same team. We're of the same mind. We believe the same things. You, you would use the metaphor to say, we should be rowing in the same direction. We should all be of one purpose on the same mission And I think this may be one of the greatest weaknesses of the American church, to be honest. As Americans, we just love our independence. We think we are self-sufficient. We want to live our lives our way, and we don't want to bow to anybody else, and we don't want to submit to anybody else, and we don't want anybody else telling us what to do. And so we have a really hard time with the unity stuff. We lose sight of the bigger picture of the body of Christ. But Paul made it clear. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, he used the analogy of a human body. He says, hey, we're all different parts. Some of us are feet, some of us are eyes, some of us are ears, some of us are kidneys, some of us are hearts. But you take it and you put it all together and you have one person. And that one person lives for one purpose and does one thing. And, And we as a body of Christ are all different. We're all made up. We're all different members. But we come together to make up one body. Think about the way the world-changing church of the first century did things. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read this to you real quick. In the book of Acts chapter 2, we get this outline. It tells us a little bit about what that church was about. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse uh, 37. No, let me begin in verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place for the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. There's just all this togetherness, one mind, one purpose, having their meals together, interdependent lives woven together. And in their case, it even came down to the situation where um, they were in such poverty and under such persecution that some had to sell their stuff in order to take care of others, and they did that. Now, this is not a mandate that says, hey, if you want to be a Christian, sell all your stuff. No, but to have that attitude That says, we're in this together, and we is more important than me. That's a really hard concept for Western thinkers like us. But it's the biblical picture of the church. A church that becomes fully mature is a church that walks in unity with God and one another. That's how they participate in the gospel. Last thing. A mature church is a humble church. Go back to Philippians and go to chapter 2 and verse 5. He's just continuing with his thought here, and he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I I just want to emphasize here, and I've already touched on this a little bit. He says, have this attitude which was also in Christ. He's not asking you to do every single thing that Jesus did or act just the way that Jesus acted. He lived in a different time, in a different culture, and in different ways, and he had a different specific calling in his life than you do, but... You need to have the same attitude. What was his attitude? Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped or clung to held on to, but instead he laid aside his rights as God and became a man so that he could die on a cross. He humbled himself to the ultimate degree to die for people who had no right to ask him to do that. And he did that for us. And we're supposed to have that attitude, the same attitude. We should be living our lives with the attitude of a servant, just like he did. I've said this before, I will say it again. You show me a mature Christian, and I will show you a humble Christian. There's there's never a time when that's not true. You, the more mature a person becomes, the more humble you become. You can't become mature in Christ without humbling yourself. Let me put it simply. We can't serve God if we're busy serving ourselves. And, and if we live to serve God, oh, make no mistake, He will call us to serve other people as well. So, so we're going to serve God, we're going to serve other people, and we're going to have to lay aside a whole lot of what we're used to doing, which is serving ourselves. And, and a lot of us understand this in some context or another. I mean, I just always think of mothers when I think of people who serve others first. You know, and you think, I don't know if my mom ever ate a hot meal in her life. Because she cooked it, she put it on the table, we started scarfing it, and we said, hey mom, what about this? And she went and got that, and she came back. And she just served us and served us and served us. And as a kid, man, I just took full advantage of that. Never thought twice about it. Went, well, yeah, this is how it should be. She's the mom. (laughs) To those of you moms out there, God bless you. And, 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 you know, and it's not just moms. But if you're a person who serves people, others first, you're looking like Jesus when you do that. That was his attitude. It it wasn't like with my mom. I mean, she was not perfect, and I'm sure that she she had a bad attitude about this many times. But it just seemed like it never even occurred to her that, I don't know, my father would get up out of his lazy boy and get himself something to drink. That just never occurred to her, and apparently never occurred to him either. (laughs) But it just never occurred to her. And now, I know it occurred to her now because I'm a grown-up. Now I get it. And I realized she sacrificed. She had an attitude of servanthood. She she decided that she was going to serve her family. And and we took advantage of her. And I never heard her complain about that. Well, maybe a time or two. <laughs> you know, and, and I watched... I watch people now that I respect and I see how they serve and I'm just blown away. There are some, some of you right here today who, and it seems like every time I see you, you're serving somebody. Man, that's Jesus. That's what it is to humble yourself. It's that attitude of humility that leads you to that place. And, and so this attitude of humility should be true for us as individuals and it should be true for us as a church. So, think about this as an individual. Because again, don't be worrying about anybody else. Let's just take stock of ourselves as individuals. Just ask yourself this In your family, what would it look like if you just decided I'm going to serve them to the best of my ability as often as I possibly can? What would it look like if you decided with your friends that you were going to be the one who is always making sacrifices so that others? have what they need what if in the workplace you looked at the people that you work with and started seeing them not just as people who are taking up space and getting in your way but as actually hurting people who need somebody to come alongside of them and bless them in some way what would it look like in our community what would it look like in this congregation if we all served each other that way what if you started taking on the posture of a servant with those around you think about how your conversations would be different like, just imagine that you started listening to understand rather than speaking to be understood. What if that became your goal? Like, how would that change your relationships? Or let me just hit on this famous or favorite whipping boy of mine, social media. How, how would this change? Those of you who are on social media, how would this change the things you decide to post? If you decided, I'm here to glorify God and serve people, that's why I have a social media account. That's why God gave it to me. And so I'm gonna use it to bring God glory and blessings to other people, not to shout my political opinions, not to mock people who disagree with me, not to uh, you know, exploit people, not to uh, draw attention to evil. But what if instead I use my social media presence as a way to serve other people, Man, that could be world-changing. With my time and my money, just think about it personally as an individual, but then let's think about it as a church. How are we known in this community? I think about this a lot. I want to be known as that church that is always helping a church that's always giving. That for people who are outside these walls, for people who are not a part of our family, that they would look and go, oh yeah, that's the church. I had a friend who was in need and that church helped them. Oh, that's the church that made their building available to us so we could have the junior high band concert. Oh, that's the church that offered to help us when we were in need of this. Oh, I met a person from that church at the grocery store and she was the nicest lady I've ever met. You know, wouldn't that be great? There, there's this. I'll close with this. There, there's a um, a young man who has come to our vacation Bible school. And uh, he's difficult, and he's he's autistic, and he's got some social anxiety things, and, and uh, he has a hard time with structure, and and you know you have to assign like two people to be with him the whole time, and he's just difficult. And uh, this year at our Friday night event where we had the families in and celebrated at the end of Vacation Bible School, his mother found me and she she pulled me aside and through tears she told me that she has never seen a church that has loved her son the way we have. And and including her home church, and she didn't live in this town, and um, she just couldn't thank us enough for the investment we have made for the last three years in her son for one week at Vacation Bible School and how it's changed his life. See, how are we known in the community? The people who are not part of us, do they see Jesus when they see us? We have that opportunity. Listen, I've been a part of this church now uh, for 32 years. And um, I've gotten to watch a whole lot of stuff happen, and here's what I'm gonna tell you from the bottom of my heart. I have never loved the church the way I love this church. I have never seen a group of people that so exemplify Christ as the people in this church. I I have never wanted to be a part of another church. I love being a part of this church, and I am so proud of the people in this church, We have come a long way in growing as a congregation in spiritual maturity. But we still have a long way to go. There's still a lot more that God wants to grow us. And I believe with all of my heart that we are going to keep growing in our maturity as a church and as individuals, and here's why I believe it, because of our participation in the gospel from the beginning until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray together. God, we want to thank you. We want to give you all the praise and glory. We want to just honor you this morning. We are thankful that you have made an investment in us for our salvation. We are thankful that you have a plan for this church and for us as a group. And we want to just lay ourselves at your feet and say, God, have your way with us. You need to make changes in us? Please do. You want to make changes through us? Please do. God, if there's anything that you want to do, here we are. We are your servants. Transform us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.